Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to have you here today and delighted to welcome our guest, Professor Stephen Terrett from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Professor Terrett is professor of health policy and management at the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, where he also serves as associate dean. He's an attorney with a background in public health and has a long history of doing innovative, groundbreaking legal work in the protection of the public's health, particularly in issues such as violence prevention, auto safety, and more recently, dietary issues. Welcome, Steve. I'm glad to have you here. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start. Why is there a role for law in public health? When you think of public health, you think of legislation. You create rules where people need to get immunized or you know, the water has to be safe or things like that. Where is the role of law in all of this? Well, obviously I have a strong bias, but I think that law in general, and when I say law, I'm including legislation, regulation, and litigation, is the most powerful tool for public health. If you look at where the greatest gains have been made in protecting the well-being of populations, oftentimes those involve law. As you say, we want the population to be vaccinated against certain diseases. We, we use law, in that case legislation, uh, to do it. We want people to be protected from dangerous objects or products. Uh, oftentimes we use regulation. Sometimes, though, legislation and regulation become very difficult because of political issues and that you might find Congress in the United States at the federal level or a state legislature or a local legislative body uh, being reluctant to pass something, not because it won't work, not because it won't protect the public, but because there are vested interests on the other side. And I think that's when it makes most sense to look at litigation as a potential tool for supplementing what you might otherwise have done through legislation or regulation. So I know one example you use to, to paint a picture of all this uh, is auto safety. Could you explain how some of the, the legislation wasn't being effective and how litigation came in as a tool? Yeah, so the United States decided that we needed to regulate in some way auto safety back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Congress passed a law that created an agency, which is now known as the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that promulgates rules for vehicle safety. And those actually have worked quite well. The death rate uh, from crashes on highways has come down very substantially in the United States. But some of the issues that had to be faced were politically hazardous issues like getting airbags in cars. And the reason that it was politically hazardous is because the automotive industry essentially didn't want to be regulated decades passed in which you couldn't get an airbag in a car, even though technologically airbags could have been available, could have been put in cars either as options or as ordinary equipment in a car. What we did ultimately when we faced that stalemate in both legislation and regulation 
is, we suggested to plaintiff trial lawyers, that they may want to sue if, uh, if a client of theirs had been damaged in an automotive crash. There might be other people at fault, but maybe the car manufacturer was at fault for not putting in life-saving technology that already existed. So uh, lawsuits were brought. They were quite successful in the early stages. And ultimately, in, in 1985, when Ford Motor Company filed a form with the Securities and Exchange Commission, it said that for that year it had $1.1 billion of airbag litigation claims pending against it. That also was the year that Ford Motor Company started to offer airbags as options in cars. Now, you tell a very interesting story about how the, the technology for airbags had existed for a long time, the manufacturers went to government with a specific request, and then, then when government... Is it, could you tell that story? Could you tell it better than I do? It's very interesting. In the late 1960s, uh, the automotive manufacturers and their allies who manufactured airbags specifically went to the person who was then the administrator of National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Dr. William Haddon, and a transcript of that meeting actually exists, so you could read what happened in, in the meeting. But basically, the manufacturers were touting the enormous benefits and lives that could be saved if airbags were in cars. Dr. Haddon, the head of the government agency, didn't want to mandate putting airbags in cars at the time, but he said that the government would try to be helpful. He said the government would act as a midwife in introducing airbags into cars. Soon, though, the administration changed in Washington, D.C. A new head of the agency came in, and that head said, we're going to force manufacturers to put airbags in cars starting 1972. As soon as the government started to talk about mandating and regulating the design of cars, the manufacturers backed up and said, no, you can't do that. We, you need to give us more time to tool up to, to make necessary changes. And what then ensued was 15 to 20 years of fighting over airbags, so much so that the United States Supreme Court said that the automotive industry had waged the regulatory equivalent of war against airbags. But actually, they were winning the war because you still couldn't buy a car with airbags, and that's when we decided that maybe we needed litigation to help introduce airbags into cars. It almost seems like the twilight zone, that the industry itself developed the technology. The industry went to government touting the, the safety benefits of the airbags, wanting them to be widely used, and then fought it for 20 years. It's really remarkable. It seems bizarre, but actually the fight really wasn't over airbags. Airbags were, were, the, were the hostage in this fight. What the automotive industry was really fighting was they didn't like the idea of being regulated. They wanted to be able to build cars how they thought cars ought to be built and not have government tell them what to put into cars. So unfortunately, Many people unnecessarily died or were severely injured during those years that the automotive industry was fighting with government over airbags. Are there estimates about how many lives a year airbags can save? Well, initially it was thought before the airbags went into cars that they would save 9,000 lives per year. That's changed to be a smaller number for a couple of reasons. Maybe the most important reason is that the number of crashes have been reduced and the severity of crashes have been reduced by other means. 
So at, at one point when I first came into public health, there were 52,000 deaths on the highway each year. Now it's down into uh, below 30,000, I'm, I'm sorry, below 40,000 deaths on the highway. So a great job has been done in making driving a, a safer activity, uh, but we still need airbags for when those crashes do occur. It shouldn't be a death penalty against the occupant in the car. Right. So during that 20-year period where the auto industry was slugging it out with government trying not to be regulated, and let's just say 9,000 was the number of lives that could have been saved per year, that's an awful lot of mortality that didn't have to exist if the industry and the government had been able to come to a resolution. And so the important point you make is that because government wasn't able to get off the dime and do things on this during that particular time, and the industry wasn't doing it voluntarily, the litigation became the change agent. Yes, it did. And it wasn't only the mortality. Uh, there's there's a lot of morbidity, people who are seriously injured who are going to be disabled the rest of their lives, but who weren't killed in the crash. And those injuries need to be averted as well. Now, I know some of the same principles that got applied um, in the domain of auto safety have also been uh, used in the gun control area, the violence prevention area. And you've really been one of the world leaders on this topic. Could you tell us how that history has played out? Well, when we saw that litigation actually can be used as an effective tool to protecting the public's well-being, we thought there's no reason why that needed to be restricted to motor vehicle safety. At the time, there were about 30,000 people in the United States each year dying from gunfire. That that number remains uh, roughly in the same neighborhood today. And we thought that, sure, uh, people die from gunfire because sometimes people are angry. People die from gunfire because people are intent on committing crime or they're depressed and committing suicide. But there are probably things that can be done about the design of guns and the marketing of guns that would reduce the death toll from guns. But it was even harder to get gun manufacturers to voluntarily change the design of guns than to get automobile manufacturers to change their products. And there was no government agency that had regulatory authority over the design of guns. One might think that the Consumer Product Safety Commission should have authority over guns, but Congress expressly forbade Consumer Product Safety Commission from doing anything with either guns or ammunition. So if I might interrupt for a minute... Uh, you've said, I've heard you say that the technological uh, uh, advances to make guns safer, some of them have been around for many years and cost almost nothing for the manufacturers to do. Why in the world wouldn't, I mean, what's the speculation about why in the world wouldn't they just put these these safety mechanisms in place? I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, certainly gun manufacturers don't want to be told what to do. But also, I believe the gun manufacturers worry about what message is going to be sent to their customer base. So, for instance, one of the technological innovations is something called a um, magazine discharge safety. In, in pistols, ammunition is kept in something called a magazine or a clip. 
And if you take that clip out, you might think that the gun no longer has any bullets in it when actually there could be what's called the round in the chamber. That results in just tragic stories where a person thought that the gun was empty, pulled the trigger, and another person gets injured or, or killed. So these magazine disconnect devices would, uh, it's our opinion, would, would save many lives. An argument was posed, though, against the use of magazine disconnect devices. The, the magazine disconnect device would mean that if you took the magazine out, even if there was a round in the chamber, that round couldn't be discharged. Physically, the gun wouldn't, wouldn't work. Some people said, but what, what about when I'm in a gunfight? Uh, so I'm, I'm pinned down. I've got another person pinned down. We're, we're exchanging um, bullets. I I realize that I've only got one round left in the chamber, so I need to drop the magazine out of my gun, put a new fully loaded magazine in. And if that's the only moment that I get the clear shot at my adversary, then I'm not going to be able to take that shot if the gun is inoperable when the magazine is out. Well, come on, how many times does that happen compared to how many times a kid finds the gun in the home and either the kid takes the magazine out or the parent who owned the gun had taken the magazine out but the kid doesn't realize that there's still the round in the chamber and a friend is dead as a result of that so sometimes the gun manufacturers have pandered to people who raise stories that would have a very low incidence of occurrence, but it's important to the person who might be buying the gun. So how, what role has litigation played in the whole issue of violence prevention and gun use? Well, with gun use, we had considerable optimism that litigation was what would finally change the design and the marketing of guns. And some of the early cases uh, warranted the optimism that we had. There were cases that were brought against prominent gun manufacturers, some of which were settled, and I can't discuss the terms of the settlement because the court has placed a confidentiality rule on that. But we thought, finally, we've, we've cut the Gordian knot, and we're going to be able to address guns the same way we address other products. We were wrong, though. The reason that we were wrong in our ability to continue in that path was that gun enthusiasts, including the National Rifle Association, got Congress to pass a bill, which was subsequently signed by President George W. Bush, that granted immunity to gun manufacturers from the kinds of lawsuits that we were about to bring. Uh, when I first heard that this bill was going to be introduced in Congress, I thought, well, I there's very low risk that that would be passed because generally we don't give any kind of product immunity in the United States. It makes no sense. In fact, it was passed. It was passed because of the political clout of organizations like the NRA. So now guns are one of the very few, if not the only product on a national basis that's granted immunity from being subject to litigation. Uh, there's a food parallel to the immunity. Could you describe that? Yes. So I think in part based upon the immunity that the gun industry sought and was granted, 
food manufacturers and food vendors thought, well, that's a pretty good deal because there was the threat of litigation against some food vendors for selling food that's calorie dense and that allegedly caused obesity and and the the damage that flows from obesity. So the food manufacturers began to lobby for what in the vernacular are called cheeseburger bills. Uh, those bills provide immunity to, to certain food vendors, mainly fast food kinds of places, saying that they can't be sued uh, for uh, serving food that was injurious to the health of, of their customers. A number of states have passed those cheeseburger bills, and legislation has been introduced at the federal level in Congress, but has not yet been passed. But uh, time will tell whether that gets passed federally or not. So I know you have been very interested in whether some of these public health victories using litigation in other areas might be applied to the food area. And I know that you have a particular interest in sodium or salt. Can you describe the, first give us some public health background on how important salt intake is to the public's health? Sure. Well, the ingestion of sodium, uh, which is part of, of salt, is a major public health problem. It's related to hypertension and other hypertensive diseases. And there's an estimate that there are approximately 150,000 excess deaths in the United States each year from the consumption of too much salt by the population in general. Uh, 150,000 for public health purposes is an enormous number. Remember, I was saying that for motor vehicle fatalities, that's now uh, in the upper 30,000s. For firearm uh, fatalities, that, that's about 30,000. 150,000 from salt is just, just staggering. Uh, so something needs to be done about that. People consume most of their salt or sodium not from using a salt shaker that's on their table, but they get it in food that's already prepared, whether that food is being sold in a restaurant or whether that food is being sold uh, in a, a supermarket, such as a, a frozen meal. Some of those food items contain just extraordinary amounts of sodium. So, for instance, for me, given given my health, given my age, I should probably consume no more than 1,500 milligrams of sodium uh, per day. If I go into some fast food restaurants and order a, a meal on the menu, I might be consuming in that one meal something more like 3,700 milligrams rather than the 1,500. So multiple times of what my recommended daily allowance is in just that one meal for the day. And of course, there's no warning placed on the menu. So most people consuming that meal don't know what they're doing to their health, but they're actually seriously threatening their health uh, with regard to hypertension, stroke, and other disease. So is the remedy to this giving consumers information about how much salt is in the foods, but keeping the foods the same? Well, that's one possible strategy, but that relies upon consumers being mindful and then consumers changing their behavior. Another way of doing that is to say, why do you need to put 3,700 milligrams of sodium 
in a, in the sandwich and, and, and French fries accompanying the the sandwich, uh, we we should be able to make tasty meals, palatable meals that add up to no more than your recommended daily allowance during a day uh, of sodium. So I think, yes, we should give consumers more information, but I also think, and this is part of a long-standing public health tradition, that we should change the product itself. You know, when we had uh, problems with people getting mosquito-borne diseases, uh, we didn't just say to people, make sure you're careful to avoid mosquitoes. We tried to eradicate the mosquito. I'm not saying that we're going to eradicate or should eradicate salt. We need some salt, and we shouldn't eradicate every kind of sandwich in a fast food restaurant, but we certainly can make food that doesn't provide someone in one meal with three times the amount of salt than he or she should be having in a day. So is there any reason to believe that the auto safety... Um, series of events will play out again that industry certainly has the capability of making foods with less salt because most of it's added Um, but they're not going to want to be regulated they'll hence resist legislators will be swayed by the political power of the industry and therefore not be involved legislatively like they might and litigation may have a role yes that's what exactly why i think litigation is so important but Food litigation presents some problems that were not presented with automotive litigation. For example, with a a car crash lawsuit, there's really no question about who was the, the wrongfully acting party. It was the driver of the car. You can identify that individual, and there's no question about causation. You, you, you see someone who was well before the crash and then badly damaged after the crash, it's easy to understand causation. With food litigation, it's it's harder because you're not sure which food maker or food vendor caused the problem because the person might have eaten in lots of different kinds of restaurants. And you're not as sure about causation because some people are going to have hypertension or some people are going to have weight problems that might be independent of that food maker's uh, behavior. So these are harder lawsuits, but it doesn't mean that they can't be successful lawsuits. It's just that we need to think about theories that uh, maybe we haven't applied before or changes in the law, in common law, which is court-made law, that would allow us to better protect the public from the kinds of dangers we're seeing regarding food. So it seems like we're in the early history of the legal thinking about this, applying public health law to the issues of obesity prevention and dietary issues in general, and it'll be very interesting to see that played out in the upcoming years. I think that's exactly right. We are in the early history of this. We we haven't figured out how to surmount the challenges that food litigation will face. But again, I'm I'm optimistic about this. One of the reasons that I'm optimistic is because there there are strong incentives to make this kind of litigation successful to protect the uh, the public. The other reason that I'm optimistic is the law is a dynamic process. The law changes to meet the needs of the population. That's what the law is supposed to do. And uh, there's a long tradition of, of judges uh, in, in courtrooms where litigation is 
taking place uh, of of crafting new types of remedies that meet the challenges of litigation that food litigation will pose for us. So I'd like to end with a, the following question. How subject is this process to uh, the political climate in the country? Um, who happens to be in the White House at the moment, whether the country is liberal-leaning or conservative-leaning at any, any given time? How much does that affect how, how this process might go? The process is strongly influenced by that. So, for example, conservative forces don't like what they call activist judges, judges who allow for the, the, the evolution of common law over time, which is the tradition of uh, common law. So, yes, uh, it's also the case that while a judge in a trial court might craft some novel solution to problems that judges in the appellate courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court may may dislike that. So it depends who's sitting on the Supreme Court, which depends upon who's sitting in the Oval Office and in, in, in the White House. So clearly uh, politics and, and culture and the tenor of the times will play a role in all of this. But, but that does not keep me from having optimism that ultimately we're going to be able to use litigation as a tool for protecting the, the public from damage in the area of food-related diseases as well as in the area of other product-related diseases. Good. Well, thank you for sharing this with us. As I said, this feels like we're at the forefront of thinking on this, and who knows where it will go, but it will be very interesting to see how the law does apply in this area of diet, nutrition, obesity prevention. So thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you very much. Uh, our guest today was Professor Stephen Terrett, Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he also serves as a, an associate dean and one of the leading experts on the application of law to the public's health. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll find a variety of uh, excellent resources there on food and food policy issue. There's an monthly email newsletter that gets dispatched at no cost, a variety of other excellent podcast visitors we've had, and the like. Thank you.